0: This morning we'd
1: like to return to the book of Nehemiah. We'd like to consider this morning Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 with the focus today on the mercy of God. The mercy of God, the theme that's all throughout this chapter, but specifically the phrase that's highlighted in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake. So here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, this is on the 24th day of the seventh month. Uh, these people have had a busy month, haven't they? Uh, busy three months. They finished the, uh, finished the wall in 52 days, and now they have uh, the worship service in the aftermath of that, the repentance and the confession, and the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then just a few days after the conclusion of that uh, Feast of Tabernacles, we find here in the 24th day of the month Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1, that Israel was assembled with fasting and sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part of the day they confessed and worship the Lord their God. So, we mentioned a few weeks ago about the amazing commitment that these people had to listen to uh, six hours of preaching and 15 plus preachers. Well, that amazing commitment is certainly continuing. That one fourth part of the day they read in the book of the law, and one fourth part of the day they confessed and worshiped the Lord. And uh, amazing commitment that we see right there. <clears throat> then the Levites stand up, and they lead the people in prayer, so to say. And what we find here through the rest of the, uh, the chapter is a summary, a, a reciting of the history of the nation of Israel and the consistent roller coaster that is the history of the nation of Israel. Um, Commitment, devotion, blessings of God beyond measure, and then immediately, or not, not immediately, but soon, they fall into into disobedience. And that's just the, the storyline and the nature of the entire Old Testament as you study it. Um, <clears throat> last Sunday afternoon, I was talking with Bethany, and I was saying, Can you really believe that these Israelites did not observe the Feast of Tabernacles, all the way back to the uh, time of Joshua. Can you really believe that the importance of this, of this feast, can you really believe that they ignored it this whole time? And Bethany said, sounds about right. <laughs> and, and that's really an astute point, isn't it? As you read the Old Testament, <laughs> you read it and you say, here we go again, right? Right? Uh, it's deja vu all over again. We make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And then right when things seem to be going good, it's almost like you know the end of the story and rarely is it good, or at least the next chapter in the story, that they're about to mess up again. (laughs) And it does sound about right if you know the Old Testament, but it's really easy for us to look at these people in the Old Testament and say, wow, look what God did for you, right? The first described Abraham and and choosing out Abraham but then uh, the liberation out of out of Egypt and obviously we know the amazing power of God that's displayed in their liberation from the affliction and the bondage in Egypt and then the Red Sea and then providing manna and water out of the rock and you look at all that and you and you say why when you get a little discouraged when you get a little hungry when you get a little thirsty why in the world would every single bit of those blessings that you've had in the past instead of them building your faith to say well i know we're a little thirsty and i don't see water in my uh direct vantage point but guess what god's gonna provide for us right that's what faith says but what did they do we're gonna find here that they said you know what Let's get a captain and let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to Egypt. And you look at these people and you're like, what is wrong with them? <laughs> to quote Brother R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> what's wrong with them? But the really sobering fact is not to throw stones in a glass house, but realize most of the time you're looking in the mirror. I'm looking in the mirror. And it may not be quite as drastic as maybe it appears in the Old Testament. But I believe that we can easily see that in each of our lives, I know for me particularly, that we see the blessings of God in the past and those should be the following the pattern and the the formula of Romans chapter five, we should glory in tribulation because tribulation builds patience and then patience experience. And then experience, what does, that, what does that create? Hope, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And hope is, the, faith is the substance of things hoped for, right? So those experiences build our faith as we go, you see? That should be the progress. But instead, we, me, is just like the Old Testament Israelites that whenever we encounter some new difficulty, for some reason we have total spiritual amnesia, right? <laughs> we absolutely forget all of the blessings of the Lord. And we, and we make mistakes, and we rely on ourselves, we rely on others, we rely on things of the world. And those things will put us in bondage. Those things will put us in bondage instead of trusting Jesus Christ in faith. But we have this, uh, this consistent pattern all the way through that, that in spite of all of the shortcomings, in spite of every mistake that the Old Testament Israelites made at essentially every turn, the consistent disposition of the Lord to his people is always, nevertheless, his mercy is displayed upon them. You know, we find in uh, Psalm 136, in every single... Uh, in every single verse in that chapter, it concludes by saying, for his mercy endureth forever, right? And if you think about those uh, psalms as literal songs that we're saying, that's the refrain, isn't it? Some of our songs, you say a line and then you repeat a line. You say a line and you repeat a line. Well, that's the, that's the refrain, isn't it? And that should be the refrain of our life as well, that his mercy endures forever. Aren't you glad that his mercies are new every morning, Right? We uh, saying, "Great is Thy faithfulness." This morning, His mercies are new every morning, and His uh, He is rich, rich in mercy. He's not He's not poor in mercy. He's He's rich in mercy. So, before we go through this here in Nehemiah chapter nine, I want to go to Psalm eighty nine, Psalm eighty nine, and just remind you of God's covenant faithfulness you know even even all the way back to when we began the book of Nehemiah if you remember in Nehemiah chapter 1 the way that Nehemiah was praying he was praying for God's mercy now uh now we pray for God's mercy first of all we probably need to define mercy for you right mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve okay Uh, We need to pray for grace and mercy every day. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. But mercy is that we are justly condemned because of our own mistakes. And in spite of God exacting the full penalty of what we have justly earned. Instead, what does he show instead of justice and austerity, What does he show? He shows mercy. But the most important thing to understand about mercy is that we have done something. We have offended God in such a way that he is holy and righteous to allow us to bear the full penalty of the consequences of our mistakes, Okay. And for us to understand the full gratitude that we should have for mercy, we first to have we first have to understand that we are the offenders, okay? We are the offenders. We've done something in disobedience to God that is worthy of me having to reap the full consequences of what I've solved. Now, the, the law of sowing and reaping is not always fully removed. I mean, we think about... Think about David, for example. Um, God still showed mercy upon David when he sinned with Bathsheba. But you know what? He still had to bear the consequences of his mistake, even though he still showed mercy on him. And you know what the consequences of those? That child died. That was a result of that. And then he had uh, not just that child, but three other children. If you remember there, uh, he told them, Nathan gave him this, this uh, story about a man that uh, took the little ewe lamb of the poor man, and he said, He's restored unto him fourfold. And David lost four sons by dying in non natural ways as consequences of his mistake. But you know what? God still showed mercy on him. He still showed mercy because God would have been righteous to strike the man after God's own heart dead right there. Because why? He had given the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme, okay? So just because God shows mercy does not mean that we do not bear the consequences of our mistakes, okay? Think about the uh, Old Testament Israelites uh, when they had to bear the consequences of their mistakes in uh, that whole generation for 40 years dying off in the wilderness, Right. They had to bear the consequences of that. They should have been eating of uh, uh, the vineyards and the, the uh, olive yards and, and, and drinking out of wells that they didn't dig in the land. Up. That's what they should have been doing, but they had to bear the consequences of that. But you know what God did, even in spite of their sin and their rebellion, he still gave that generation manna every single day. He allowed their clothes to not wear out for 40 years, and he allowed their shoes to not wear out for 40 years. He still showed mercy to them. So we pray and we beg for mercy, but don't ever think that God's going to be mocked, right? God's not mocked. What we sow, we will reap, and he will make us bear the consequences of our mistakes. But the reason why we can have confidence in God's mercy toward us, on a in a providential daily basis, you could say, is because of God's mercy toward us in eternal salvation in the eternal covenant of redemption, right? And, and that really should be the uh, the baseline reason why we should have confidence and faith in Jesus Christ in any circumstance, because if He uh, he's, promised he's promised us he's never going to leave us or forsake us. But if he went to the extent of giving his only begotten son to, to deliver us from the ultimate penalty of death in an eternal sense, why would we ever doubt that our good heavenly father is going to provide for our daily needs in a temporal, providential sense, right? If he proved his faithfulness in the eternal covenant of redemption, why would we ever doubt that his mercies are going to be new every morning to provide for my needs, right? Okay, so our confidence in God's daily providential mercies, in spite of our mistakes, is based on what? The eternal covenant of redemption. Okay, Psalm 89, <clears throat> and uh, there's a lot uh, here in this chapter. We'll just, we'll just have to jump in here in uh, Brown verse 24. <clears throat> but my faithfulness and you need to obviously read what comes before that to see the reason for the but. but but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted I will set his hand also in the sea and in the right hand he shall cry upon uh, unto me thou art my father my God the rock of my salvation verse 28 my mercy will I keep For him forevermore and my covenant shall stand fast with him his seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven now remember God made a covenant with Abraham for uh, his posterity that is speaking of natural Israel but in a greater sense it's speaking of, of spiritual Israel and all the elect family of God but he promised them that they would have a Um, a legacy of an inheritance of this land, right? And remember, God took them off the land for 70 years, but then he allowed them to return. And and this is the last um, revival, the last uh, restoration that we find in the Old Testament uh, before the 400 silent years leading up to the New Testament. And that's what we've been considering in the book of Nehemiah. But that covenant faithfulness to the nation of Israel is really pointing toward the covenant faithfulness towards the elect, right? Because yes, the, um, the natural nation of Israel expanded and grew in a very exponential way, but he says that uh, if someone is, is tracing an a accurate genealogy at any given time, you should be able to name the posterity of Abraham. But he says your your posterity is going to be as vast as the stars of heaven. Right? Which is speaking of the elect, not the natural nation of Israel. So what he's speaking primarily of here is the covenant that, that God made before the foundation of the world to save his elect from their sins, which is an exposition of what? God's mercy, right? What's the whole reason he had to make a covenant of redemption? It's because we needed to be redeemed, right? He knew that Adam would fall in the garden, and he made provisions beforehand to make a covenant for the Son of God to come and exhibit mercy on the cross by him dying for our sins. But the eternal covenant of redemption is a unilateral monergistic covenant, right? And both of those uh, prepositions, uni and and mono, mean one. It's one sided. It's one sided. And this is why it has to be one sided. (laughs) If his children forsake my law, verse 30, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments. Well, that's inevitable. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short of the glory of God. None of us have the ability to be saved by works, right? None of us have the ability to live a holy enough life to, to meet God's perfect and, and holy standard that would be required in perfect obedience to the law for us to be saved by works. Now, what's God gonna do when, when his children, remember his disposition as a heavenly father toward it? what's he gonna do to his children when they disobey the commands of the father? He's gonna chastise them. He's gonna discipline them. Then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, right? He's, as a loving heavenly father, he's going to chastise his child that needs to learn an appropriate lesson when they are in disobedience. But in spite of that, in spite of his children forsaking his law and walking not in his judgments, verse 33, nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from them, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant... Will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips? So if you remember, uh, uh, Nehemiah is speaking in more of a nationalistic uh, Jewish sense, but uh, when he's praying there in Nehemiah chapter one, do you remember what he was saying? He's essentially saying, Lord, everything that we've had to endure in being sent to Babylon in captivity, in the, in the, the city of Jerusalem being destroyed, everything we've had to endure is holy and righteous judgment because we have disobeyed your law, right? It's very important. If we're going to ask for mercy, the first thing we need to do is confess our sins, right? If you're, you, the Lord's not going to be very inclined. to Think about yourself as a parent. Are you going to be very inclined to show mercy to your child, right? They've been disobedient. They have absolutely earned the hand of discipline. Are you going to be very inclined to show mercy to them if they look you in the face and keep lying in your face and say, no, I didn't do that. No, I have you on video, right? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Are you going to be very inclined to show mercy to your child if they look you in the face and continue to refuse to confess the obvious transgression that they've had? So if we're going to beseech for God's mercy, the first thing we have to do is confession. And did you see how that, how that chapter started there in Nehemiah chapter 9? They were so overwhelmed with their sin. They spent three hours publicly confessing their sin and worshiping the Lord. So the first step of asking for mercy is confession, right? It's saying, Lord, number one, and that's what Nehemiah did in chapter one, right? He said, Lord, everything that my people have had to, the whole reason that the walls are broken down is, is not because... You are unjustly being unfair to us. It's because of our sin, and you're just upholding your word. You told us beforehand. You made a covenant with us, and we and we consented to the covenant, right? We consented to the covenant, and and you are absolutely holy and righteous to exact all of the provisions of the covenant. You see. But what did God? Uh, what, what did Nehemiah pray for to God? Uh, there in Nehemiah chapter In spite of that, Lord, I publicly acknowledge that the whole reason we're in this mess is because of our sin. In spite of that, Lord, please show mercy to us. Please show mercy. And then, boy, haven't we seen throughout the book of Nehemiah just an exposition of God's mercy, right, upon his people? So the reason why God shows mercy is not because of any merit in and of ourselves. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Right? I want to make sure that I am beating this dead horse. It is the exact opposite because if we're to the point of even requesting mercy, then we have offended and we are worthy of every single bit of God's righteous judgment, right? Praise the Lord. In spite of that, in spite of, uh, of our shortcomings, God is rich in mercy. Now, we want to, uh, again, focus on the eternal aspect of it so we can have confidence in God's, uh, God's provision and mercy for us on a daily basis. And that's what we find in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, right? Remember how that chapter starts? You have to be quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin. And you know what? You used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You, this is who you used to be, but then we have a drastic shift in verse four, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, right? And it's because he's rich in mercy, that whole chapter there in Ephesians chapter two, or at least the first portion of it, is talking about the new birth, right? Why were we born again? Because God is rich in mercy, Right? He's rich in mercy. So we understand that God's, it's exhibited through the natural nation of Israel, but again, he's, he's primarily teaching spiritual lessons for the elect family of God and for the church today. The reason why God was faithful to and Nehemiah knew this and he prayed in that way. Um, the reason why God was faithful to Old Testament Israel was not because of anything in and of themselves, it was because of his commit God's commitment to his covenant. Okay, and that is the only thing that we have to plead as well. Right, if you're in the point of uh, in, the, in the situation of, of asking for mercy. You can't say, this is just a big misunderstanding. This is, not, this is not miscommunication. This is not you putting assumptions on me that are inaccurate. No. If I'm asking for mercy, I'm saying, Lord, I have offended your law, and I'm worthy of this judgment. But Lord, in spite of that, what do we pray? We don't say, Lord, I, <laughs> you're probably going to be just like the Old Testament Israel. I promise I'm going to do it right this time. I promise, I promise, I promise that I'm not going to make the same mistake that I've made 30 different times before. I promise I'm going to do it right this time. Do you think he's going to show mercy based on that possibly empty promise? (laughs) Do you want to know why God's going to show mercy? It's because of his covenant, right? So when you pray, when you pray for the mercy of God, you don't say, Lord, I'm finally going to get it together this time. Now you need to, right? You need to repent. You need to do the best you can, but the Lord is not going to show mercy to you because you say, "Lord, I, f- I finally figured out all my mistakes, and I'm going to have it right going forward." You say, "Lord, you are a God of mercy. You're you're you have a covenant of mercy." And Lord, in spite of me, I pray that you would be merciful to honor your covenant. You see, so when we pray for mercy, it's not it's not because of us. It's us saying, "Lord." Which is exactly how Nehemiah prayed at the beginning of this, this book, is Lord, you show mercy to us based on your faithfulness to your covenant. And uh, just in, in case I forget, um, when as he's as he's highlighting um, all of these uh, offenses throughout multiple generations, um, one of those is when. Um, you know, it's just amazing, isn't it? I say it's amazing, but uh, if we're being honest, we are looking in the mirror. But, but it is amazing that right after uh, Israel was uh, delivered out of Egyptian bondage and then uh, crossed the Red Sea, that Moses is just gone for 40 days up in Mount Sinai. And when he comes down, They've got a molten, graven image of a calf and all kinds of debauchery and sin going on. I mean, 40 days, you know? And I don't know how soon in that 40 days they started all that stuff, but it probably wouldn't day 39. I mean, just a few days. And and look how they're just naturally gravitating to, to this, this sin. And then the Lord says, okay, I have given these people every single chance i'm gonna i'm gonna wipe these people out i'm gonna wipe out these israelites because they have sinned against me and moses i'm gonna start over with you and you know what that was a just statement for god to make that statement but you want to know how moses interceded he didn't say oh no 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 lord you don't understand they needed to let off steam, right? <laughs> you don't understand. They have they've spent hundreds of years in bondage. you got to cut them some slack because they're making these mistakes out in the wilderness. He didn't make any excuses. You want to know how, how Moses prayed? Moses said, Lord, show mercy to them based on your covenant. Now, there, there's a lot of implications there. And obviously the Lord he uses the language there. Uh, that the Lord repented, the Lord repented of the evil that He sought to do to them now evil doesn 't always mean sin, it means calamity. Ben he would have been absolutely righteous to send down. He did that at various times in history, right? Send down fire from heaven and consume people right He would have been right to do that, but there were a lot of promises that were made that would have been in jeopardy if he started over with Moses, one of the primary ones being Moses was a Levite. And the promise is always that the Messiah was going to come out of the nation of Judah, right? You see, there are so many implications of God's covenant faithfulness where Moses said, Lord, I agree with you. <laughs> it's funny a little bit later. Moses, Moses intercedes in that way for him right there. And then afterward, there's a separate time where the Lord is trying to be merciful and Moses has now changed his opinion, and he's saying, I'm tired of these people too, right? (laughs) I I should have just let you do what you were going to do to start, with." I'm tired of these these millions of people continually uh, rebelling against you. But don't miss the point. The reason why in that instance Moses beseeched the mercy of God was because of God's covenant faithfulness, okay? And when we pray for mercy as well, that's what we go back to. We go back to the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. Okay, let's go to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter nine, and try to go through this summarization of the, the, the Levites here during this time period are reflecting back on multiple generations of God's people of Old Testament Israelites but we could say the exact same thing of spiritual Israel and church multiple generations of God's people that fell into the exact same pitfalls that fell into the exact same trap and it's not just it's not just individual people right i mean in our own life we all have our besetting sins we all ha- all have some things that are very difficult for me to keep under control and to keep a positive mindset in, even if it's just controlling your thought life. I hope that you control your thought life enough to where you don't let it get to external actions. But listen, we all have thoughts that pop in our head that we are prone to various disciplines, and it may, may be different for you than it is for me, but we all have a tendency to maybe not Handle those thoughts when they pop in their he- pop in our head as well as we should. And inevitably, that's usually going to create mistakes in the future, right? But whatever your besetting sin is, it might be different for you than it is for me. So I'm not even talking about uh, our personal life of the roller coaster of Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Oh, I'm in unbelief, Lord strengthen my faith and, and that consistent roller coaster of, of faith it, that we go on I'm not even talking about uh, our personal challenges that seems to be cyclical and we seem like we struggle with the same things over and over and over again these are different people in different generations with different circumstances and they make the same mistakes over and over and over again and you want to know what? god in his perfect wisdom he knows the exact susceptibilities of his people and you want to know what they had to do to avoid the same pitfalls over and over and over and over again you want to know all they had to do obey the commandments of the law that the lord gave them all the way back in leviticus and deuteronomy right isn't that simple right we're even going to see this uh, Continuing on in Nehemiah, we're going to see the exact same cycle. <laughs> it's deja vu all over again. They, right after this, they commit to the covenant. They said, Lord, oh, oh our daddy's messed up, right? Oh, man, we're, we're in this spot because of the mistakes of all these generations past. But, Lord, we are recommitting to the covenant. Lord, we're going to do everything our, our parents did wrong. We're going to do it right. And they, didn't, they got specific they said, we're going to separate ourselves from the heathen. We're not going to uh, uh, transact business on the Sabbath day. We are not going to marry these heathen people that lead us into idolatry like you told us not to do. All these things that you told us not to do, Lord, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Fast forward 12 years in Nehemiah 13, and every single point, almost every point, that they committed to, to re rededicated that they were going to do, In Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, every point that they recommitted, guess what happened 12 years later? They were doing the same thing, right? So, yes, on an individual basis, we struggle with certain things. But listen, boy, Satan has 6,000 years of experience in tempting God's people and boy he knows what works he knows what's worked he's got he's got his schemes figured out now he's always looking for a new way to package those same tactics those same wiles in 2023 he's always looking for a new way to package it but his structure of temptation well he's got 6,000 years of experience And you know what? You want to know why he keeps doing the same thing over and over again? It's repackaged a smidge different in every generation. But you want to know why he keeps doing it? Because it works. Because it works. Because we're susceptible. I mean, just look at the example here of uh, do not marry. Do not marry women from these heathen nations. It doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity, but the reason why is because these women worship false gods. And if you start marrying these women, you're going to start worshiping the false gods. Because guess what? When men get all googly-eyed over women, what do they do? They lose their convictions most of the time, right? And has that story not been played out, not just all throughout the Old Testament, but all throughout the church, just because if they, sh- if they would have just followed God's word in the New Testament version of that is do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, right? If you just follow God's word, you are going to remove yourself from all these different perils. But guess what happens? Satan knows that lust works all day, every day, right? If we're not mortifying our mind, if we're not putting on the whole armor, of God, he knows it works. So what happens? In every generation, boy, they see some strange woman from another nation that worships idols. And what do they do? They get enticed by them. They marry them. Next thing you know, they're worshiping idols. Next thing you know, their children doesn't know anything about Jehovah God, right? And you start letting that happen in a wide-scale basis, you got a whole generation that's falling into idolatry, right? That's exactly what happened. And that's highlighted again here in the book of Nehemiah. And they said, Lord, I know that our daddy's messed up. Okay? But we're not going to do that. Twelve years later, guess what happened? Right? Twelve years later, guess what happened? They had done the same thing. Okay? So what I'm telling you is there there is the same cycle and the same temptations over and over and over again. And the way... The way that we protect ourselves from that same temptation is just simply through taking our heavenly father at his word, telling his children, don't do this. It's almost kind of like that dad that says when the, when the child starts back talking you and you say, why dad? Because I said so. <laughs> And the reason why, because I said so is right, is because God in his omniscience, he knows the end of the story, right? He knows the end of the story. He knows what's going to happen. And this, this child in their ignorance says, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I can, I can talk to this girl. That's an unbeliever. No, no, I can, I can handle it. Instead of just simply taking God's word at face value and saying, I'm not going to do that because my heavenly father said so in his word and if you do that i mean the whole reason why god's people in the old testament were in this pickle was because they just ignored god's word if they would have followed god's word they wouldn't have had any of these perils right but instead we're no better than them right we don't put confidence in god's word we put confidence in ourselves Put confidence in other people. Put confidence in the world, and guess what? We inevitably make mistakes. Okay, Nehemiah chapter nine. <clears throat> we're going to have to just kind of hit the highlights here. Uh, he called them. He called originally Abraham. Abram he addresses that in verse seven. And notice they again. This is this is the Levites with a public prayer. Now, what's going to happen by the end of the chapter is that they're going to recommit to the covenant right? They're saying, Lord, our parents, the previous generations, we publicly acknowledge that they have messed up and they messed up, every generation messed up. But Lord, I know they messed up, but we're committing that we're not going to. We're committing we're not going to make the same mistakes. Now, unfortunately, we know 12 years later, they're right back where the previous generation was, but what they're doing here is they're publicly confessing. Not this is not just a, a general historical narrative of Israel. This is this is the mistakes of our fathers. Okay, and we should be able to acknowledge that and see that, and then not fall into those those same traps. So he made a covenant <clears throat> with Abram, verse eight. Thou found his heart faithful before thee, and thou madest a covenant with him. For this land, and the whole reason we're even sitting in this land is because of the covenant. Now, there's a lot of discussion right now uh, with everything that's happening with Israel and Hamas, and now I understand that there's a lot of stuff out there in dispensationalist theology that the nation of Israel is going to be fully revived. Uh, I don't take it that far, but to say that God has absolutely no purpose for the physical soil over there. In the promised land, I can't see how that could be the case when the Lord has uh, amazingly, providentially allowed the nation of Israel to be revived in, what was it, 1948. Now, I don't know how that plays out, and we don't need to uh, take it as far as some dispensationalist theology does, but it's my opinion that that soil over in the Middle East is going to be vitally important the closer we come to the second coming of the Lord. So even though God's presence has been primarily removed from the natural nation of Israel, guess what? There there are descendants of the nation of Israel that are still inhabiting thousands upon thousands of years later the physical soil that God made a covenant to Abraham to give him, right? And that should not be ignored. So, But the whole reason for that is certainly not because of the covenant faithfulness of the, uh, of the natural lineage of the Jews. No, it's because of what? God made a covenant. God made a covenant. And he says, I'm going to give this land to your posterity. Okay? Now, they went into uh, Egyptian bondage uh, during that time of famine. They grew in the midst of that. And then, obviously, a new king came that did not know Joseph. And they uh, had great bondage of affliction. Uh, then they were delivered out of that. Uh, verse 11, Thou divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and their persecutors, you, you, you drowned in the sea. Uh, then then they went to Sinai. <clears throat> verse 13, Thou camest also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws and good statutes and commandments and madest them... Uh, to know the Holy Sabbath and the commandments and the precepts. And then verse 15, thou gavest them hunger from heaven, or gave them bread from, from heaven for their hunger and broughtest them forth uh, for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that thou shouldest go in to possess the land that thou hast given unto them. So you... you Should be able to look back and say, We were in bondage and affliction, and and my back had been whipped by those taskmasters there in in Egypt. And now we've seen Egypt brought to their knees through these 10 plagues. We've been not just let out of bondage, but we went out rich with all this gold and silver and purple linen and all this stuff. And then we get to the Red Sea, and the Lord opens the Red Sea. Right? And then we get thirsty and we go, oh man, well, how are we gonna have anything to drink? I don't see any water. He gives you water out of a rock. We get hungry. He gives you manna from heaven. You get discontented with the manna. Oh, we want some meat. He gives you some quail from heaven. I mean, every single, uh, the line that always sticks with me so much in the, in the song, great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand is provided. I mean, that is exactly what he did for them in the wilderness, right? And what was their response to that? Verse 16. But they and their fathers dealt proudly. Again, this is too much for us to delve into, but consistent mistakes in actions typically lead from consistent uh, beginning mistakes in the mind, in the heart. And the first one is always pride. Because pride says... I'm not going to put confidence and faith in Jehovah God. I'm going to put confidence in myself. You know, it says in the Proverbs, I was reading that this morning. It says, confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. And it's a very sobering thing to realize when it says an unfaithful man. And there's some unfaithful people out here, Right? that can be like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint, but arguably the most unreliable person is me. Now, that's pretty sobering to realize, isn't it? <laughs> that the primary unfaithful man to put confidence in is me. If I put confidence in myself, it's like I'm ripping my own tooth out and breaking my own foot, right? Who do I put confidence in? Who got you out of Egypt? That's the question, isn't it, right? <laughs> did, you, did you come up with some good political strategy did you come up with a really good military coup? Who got you out of Egypt? The power of God got you out of Egypt, right? So now, why would you put confidence in anybody other than the Lord? But notice what started, what started this downward decline. They and their, their fathers dealt proudly. And they hardened their necks, you know. <laughs> when you're prideful, when you're prideful, you don't really want to listen to what other people have to say. And you, you, know, you get very rigid When somebody tells you you're wrong, I can't be wrong, right? You stiffen your neck. Where's that stiff neck come from? Pride. Pride. Which also, that was the first sin. Uh, Don't turn over here. Let me see if I can find this real quick. I think this is in Ezekiel 16. Speaking of Sodom... Ezekiel 16, verse 49, this was the iniquity of Sodom. Look where Sodom ended up, right? Look where Sodom ended up. Where did it start? Where did it start? This was the iniquity of Sodom, which also, Ezekiel 16, it's talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel that followed the exact same pattern of Sodom. And he said, honestly, in God's opinion, you're worse than Sodom. Okay, so where was the down, da- what was the downcline? Where was the the, uh, the beginning of the, of the decline of where Israel got to the point where God sent them into into bondage. Where does it all start? Where does it all start? What's the very first thing that God hates? A proud look, a proud heart. What what was the beginning of the decline of Sodom? Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and then that led to, they didn't strengthen the hands of the needy, were haughty, they committed abomination. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness what started the decline of Israel right here pride pride and they stiffen their necks they say I'm not going to listen to the Lord we know better than the Lord and they refused to obey neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them right that's what they should have reminded themselves of who cares if these if these giants in the land of Canaan look big right who cares if we're supposedly grasshoppers in their side who cares because our god's gonna wipe out those giants right that's what faith says that's what joshua and caleb said by faith but the lord or, or satan enticed those 10 out of the 12 don't always follow the majority by the way 10 out of the 12 to give an evil report that they didn't press into the land okay They refused to obey. Verse seventeen. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but they hardened their necks. And then they appointed a captain to return to their bondage. How in the world you've been liberated from the from the stripes of the taskmasters on your back, and God has provided everything that you you get a little discouraged, you get a little afraid. And they say, I want to go back into bondage. And we look at that and you're like, what's wrong with you people, right? But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, trust and confidence in yourself and the things of the world will always be a bondage to you. Okay? It's not going to be liberating for you, it's going to be in bondage. And what do we do? Instead of just walking by faith and saying, Lord, I don't know, I, I don't see a way right now, but you're going to take care of us. You've promised us that you will. Instead, we put ourselves back into our own bondage of confidence and trust primarily in ourself. Okay? So we covet and lust to be back in bondage ourselves. <laughs> Read the book of Galatians, right? Now that's talking about the gospel, but we do that on a daily basis. Not just in forsaking the truth of the gospel. why why do we ever idolize uh, or put our own little fictitious um, positive spins on this bondage that we put ourselves in when we trust in ourselves instead of the Lord, okay? But in spite of all that, boy, if... (laughs) God's God and we're not, right? But you almost see these little glimpses where the Lord, I say this with all the reverence in the world, kind of acts a little like us, right? That's how we would have been. If I was on Mount Sinai and I've done everything for you people and you immediately go into idolatry, I'm going to wipe all you people out, right? (laughs) That's a natural response. We can identify with that, right? That is a natural response. So what is God's response toward them just spoiling everything he's given them well thankfully god's character god's nature is primarily mercy and grace and he's holy and he's just right praise the lord that he's not a god solely of justice and holiness because if he was he wouldn't have chosen anyone before the foundation of the world right it would have been pretty simple on that last day of judgment. <laughs> and everyone would be on the left hand. Everyone would be judged, uh, condemned because of our sin, and we'd all be cast in a lake of fire. Judgment day would be really simple if God, if his, if his primary identifying attribute was His holiness and His justice. But instead, God is a God of love, of mercy. And notice, in spite of that, In spite of of them, and in our nature, we can see ourselves wanting to retaliate. But what does God do instead? But God, this is verse 17, as his people are down there saying, we want to go back to bondage, God renews his character and his holiness. Thou art a God ready to pardon gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and forsake us them not. Amen. Now, before we lose track of time and and, uh, don't make this point, we always want to make an application point for you. Because God is so merciful to us then it's our duty and our privilege to show mercy to others, right? Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of thee? Do justly to love mercy and then to walk humbly with thy God, right? Now, be honest, do justly, love mercy, and don't miss the last point, walk humbly with thy God. What's the first decline uh, that we've been highlighting? It's pride, right? Walk humbly with thy God. But because of God's great mercy toward us, we, as much as in me is, there are circumstances where you just have to say, listen, you got to bear the consequences, right? You have to bear the consequences of what you've done. But as much as in me is, we need to love mercy. We need to love mercy because that's what God requires. It's not a suggestion. That's what God requires of us. And if God's shown me that, that much mercy, it's very difficult if I have a proper understanding of that, for me to be harsh and legalistic and unforgiving toward others. you don't have time to go over to Matthew chapter 18 and how he says one man's been forgiven of 10,000 talents, right? And then he goes and he throws somebody in jail that owed him only 100 pence. Well, if you do that, the Lord's going to be just like that master in that parable. And he says, when the master found out about that, why? Because he was ungrateful for God's mercy toward him, and he didn't show mercy to someone else. He goes and he throws that first guy that was originally forgiven 10,000 talents. He throws him into bondage and judgment, you see? So it's our duty and privilege to show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us, okay? i going to have to skip through most of this here. In spite of... Um, in spite of that generation getting afraid by the way there's so much I 've been studying on, on fear and faith and, and how fear just quenches faith and that 's exactly what happened in uh, Joshua 's day there that first generation why was their faith just vaporized because they got afraid they got afraid and Fear will typically extinguish faith and confidence and trust in the Lord. So, because of thy, verse 19, yet thou and thy manifold mercies. He says that quite a few times here in this chapter. Your manifold mercies. Your dynamic mercies. Because you've done all these things for us. Um, In spite of them not pressing into the land of Canaan in that first generation, you know, if I was the Lord, um, he could have, you know, he could have struck them all dead there, right? But you want to know what he did? He allowed them the privilege of having more years with their family, and during that time period, he still gave, <laughs> you know, what he could have done you know, in the land of uh, of Goshen. Uh, Goshen was protected when all these judgments went on uh, uh, the nation of Egypt. What the Lord could have done is He could have sent manna just down individually to uh, to just the obedient people that were going to go to the land of Canaan forty years earlier. And He could have He could have starved out the, the rebellious ones, right? Because you want to know what He did to those rebellious people? He gave them manna for forty years, or however how long they lasted. He allowed their clothes to not wear out, their shoes to not wear out, even though they were rebellious against him. You see, he's a God of of mercy. (laughs) Aren't you so glad that he's a God of mercy, even in our disobedience? Even if we're having to bear the full consequences of our disobedience, like that generation that was going to die in the wilderness, you want to know what he still did? He still was merciful to them. Again, his mercies are new. Every morning, that manna was there every morning for them. They still drank out of water from rocks. The Lord provided for them, okay? So now they go into the land of Canaan. He gives them great deliverance. They go into the land of Canaan, verse 25. They took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards, olive Yards, fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. And aren't you glad for the blessings of the promised land, right? But the problem, though, is when we become prosperous, what starts kind of rising a little bit? Some of that pride starts rising a little bit, doesn't it? Especially if there's a generation... That first generation was very grateful because they remembered Egyptian bondage. But the next generation had not been properly taught by that first generation, so guess what they did? They took it for granted, right? They hadn't felt the the affliction of bondage. And now there's a whole generation that doesn't have any perspective. They don't feel like they need the Lord because everything's prosperous. Pride wells up. Next thing you know, they're in disobedience, right? Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against the, and cast their law, but they rejected God's word, right? And then not only did they reject God's word, and not only did they ignore the preachers who told them God's word, they slew the prophets which testified against them to turn to thee. You know, it's not just they ignored the prophets. It's not just they ignored the preachers. They killed the preachers. Right, So God is so gracious as a heavenly father to go tell his... He's sending somebody to tell his children, you're making a mistake, turn, and I'll bless you. And what was their response? To kill the messenger from the father that's telling them that they need to repent. So then... You deliver them, verse 27. Again, you just see the cycle continuing over and over again. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them, and then in their time of trouble they cried out to the Lord. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it, right? You know, why is there a need for me to have fasting and prayer and supplication when everything's easy and nice, when everything's easy, peaceful? But then when we get in trouble, oh, well, it's time to start fasting. It's time to start making my prayers very fervent. In the time of their trouble, they cried unto thee, but God so good thou heardest them from heaven, right? Because he's got a mercy, he heard them. And according to thy manifold mercies, which thou, thou gavest them saviors, this is talking about the time of the judges, right? They sent them saviors in the midst of these, these uh, oppressions by the Midianites and other people. And then what happens? Verse 26, excuse me, verse 28. But after they had what? After they had rest, after they had, okay, <laughs> we, are, we are fervent and, you know, we, we do not like being in bondage to other people. So now we're going to pray diligently unto the Lord for him to remove that bondage. Okay, now the bondage is gone. Okay, my prayers cease. I get rest. I get comfortable again. After they had rest, surprise, surprise, they did evil again before thee. I remember a quote I heard Brother Michael go say in a sermon a long time ago that trailer, a trailer, rides a whole lot easier with weight on it. And it is not in your best interest. And God, God knows that. It is not in your best interest to live this whole life with no troubles, with ease and comfort. You need a little bit of weight on that trailer so it'll run smooth. What happens when we have rest and prosperity, and peace, and comfort. What happens? Well, it's a consistent pattern over and over again. Complacency, idleness, pride, sin. And I, I know that none of us, I sure wouldn't, would ever go out and make a graven image of some little old bitty uh, piece of metal. But the, the greatest danger that we have of idolatry is making an idol and confidence in ourself instead of the Lord. Okay? The greatest peril of idolatry we have is ourself. And where does that come from? Surprise, surprise. Pride. Right? Pride. <clears throat> After they had rest, they did evil again. And again, the cycle continues and continues and continues. Verse 30. Yet for many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by the spirit of prophets, yet they would not hear. They wouldn't listen. I'm sending prophets to tell you. Boy, I'm so, you know, every time I start kind of moping around about my ministry, I I try to think about Jeremiah. (laughs) I've got it way better than Jeremiah. He had to go tell the people, you're going into bondage. Repent, repent, repent. 70 years in Babylon. Repent, repent, repent. They ignored him. Guess what? He had to watch them spend 70 years in Babylon, you see? But the Lord told them, repent. Otherwise, you're going into Babylon. Which, by the way, uh, just numerically, if they would have repented earlier, you know, I think the Lord probably still would have sent them in there, right? Because 70 years, they forsook the land for 70 years, and there were 70 years in in, uh, bondage to make up for that. But it's my opinion that, you know, every seventh year, if they would have repented... 70 years earlier, they probably only would have stayed 60 years, right? God's not going to just tack on just because he said so. If they would have repented, they would have reduced their sentence, so to say. Guess what? They ignored the messenger. But in spite of all that, in spite of all that, verse 31, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them why why for thou art a gracious and merciful god amen thou art a gracious and a merciful god we sure are thankful for the refrain there in psalm 136 that his mercy endures forever his mercy endures forever in spite of our shortcomings we place confidence in the covenant faithfulness of the god of mercy
0: We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.